jasoncharles.net. Deep talk, deep sounds. Arts and culture. You are listening to Lost Angeles with Laura Craven on jasoncharles.net. Welcome to Los Angeles. This is Laura Craven. The following episode featuring my very special guest, Ned Doheny, veers away slightly from the general theme of Los Angeles, exploring Southern California architecture. We wanted to talk with Ned because of his history as an LA native. He's part of the cultural and physical landscape of Malibu life for nearly four decades. And of course, we had to take the opportunity to ask him about his long and interesting music career. Ned is smart, humorous, and a valued part of the Los Angeles music scene. Please note that we were recording at a location along Pacific Coast Highway, and the consistent flow of traffic can be heard throughout the piece. Hope you will enjoy our conversation as much as I did. And now, my very special episode with legendary singer-songwriter, an integral part of the original Hollywood Hills music scene, Ned Doheny. This is Laura Craven with Los Angeles on the JasonCharles.net podcast network. Today, my very special guest is Ned Doheny, singer-songwriter and Malibu resident. Welcome, Ned. Oh, thank you. Uh, of course, I want to talk about your life here in Malibu and what makes that special, but I should touch on the fact that you're an accomplished songwriter. You have solo albums and you have played on many illustrious albums with a lot of great artists that we would all know, like J.D. Souther and Glenn Fry, And of course, this goes back to the 1970s. I think at the height of record sales for you, it was kind of the later 70s. Well, actually, um, strangely enough, I've had more record sales in the last five years than I have in, in the 1970s, other than covers by other people. Shaka Khan's What You're Gonna Do For Me was worked out well financially, but mm -hmm. even still, I mean, the current market, much to my amazement, seems to be uh, a little more generous. Well, from what I understand, there is a special UK record label called Be With Music, oh, yes. and they have been re-releasing your music on vinyl. They have, and I, I signed a contract with a, a record company called the Numero Group, and they did a, a compilation which did extremely well. And uh, they're kind of a sort of a new iteration of the record company. Um, they find material from people that they f don't feel got the respect that they deserve. So they're archivists. Nice. But they have really high production skills, and their their stuff is, you know, always wonderful and well thought of. And nice. And I I became friends with that bunch as well. That's great. Well, they must have been fans from. They were fans. Prior, and they're so happy to have you on the label. <laughs> I do understand that uh, DJs worldwide love your music because they can put it on a loop and people in clubs. I mean, of course, not now during the pandemic, but it's just great flow of music, danceable, and that's a great legacy. Well, it, it kind of caught me by surprise, I have to say. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a snob. <laughs> 
about music because it's not easy to learn and it takes a lot of practice and you know you really have to you know want to be able to do it well to do it well and have to be fortunate enough to be able to get your hands on a musical instrument while you're still pretty young right well and i had read that about you that your first musical instrument exposure was a christmas gift well that's true yes so, yes my parents rude the day but at least they didn't buy you drums <laughs> because sometimes no. that can be very rueful no that's true i mean yes but they the life state little did they realize that i would be engulfed by the lifestyle which mm-hmm. you know right which you started pursuing rather i left i well I, I did my first session when i was in high school and then by the time the beatles showed up i'd already been playing for 10 years wow so why not why why not and then you had the impetus or the encouragement to take it professional well i i interesting thing about it is that i found myself in the clutches of serendipity and and in those days you know plots were hatched in the most informal situations <laughs> imaginable and i just hopped from one stone to another and found myself with you know really great people pretty much every step of the way that's great and another part of that is you were able to recognize the opportunity you know yes you were involved with great people but i'm sure that there were some folks in in that part of your life that were kind of heading by the wayside and you were pursuing this with the real musicians that were going to make a difference well there yeah i mean and also there's a tremendous element of luck i mean we found ourselves in a period of time where music was in a yeah, popular music was in ascendancy so that was sort of a train we were all lucky to be able to hop aboard some of us wrote it farther than others but yeah the opportunities abounded in those days, especially if you were any good right and then to that end you were part of the whole Laurel Canyon music scene and that was going yeah, in the late no, no, 60s I, I was and I, I you know I got involved with I answered I was sleeping on a friend of mine's floor and I answered Ned in the free pass they were searching for a guitarist and I went to some hotel room and you know played a little bit and I was invited up to a house in Laurel Canyon and they wanted me to he said I would want you to play guitar for this person named Jackson Brown and I immediately thought oh did an, Af- an African American how wonderful I I've, I've worshiped at that shrine my whole life so no and it was a guy that looked like a, as I've said before a, you know skinny latin kid uh-huh but we you know started a long friendship and I was 18 wow is it surprising to you that today a lot of your music is sampled across hip hop the hip hop genre Yeah, I mean it, it it's it, well, okay, first of all, much of hip hop and and I, you know, involves borrowing music that's already been recorded and all the rest of that. So, you know, I mean, yeah, sure. Right. Like even that term sampling was born of that because yes. it didn't exist yes. before the borrowing, as you say. Yes, well, it was as, it was as simple as buying a uh, what is it, a Roland 760 <laughs> or something like that and off you went. Right. Okay, I did want to touch on also potentially this guitar that you received as a Christmas gift way back. Could that have been at 
your family's mansion in Los Angeles, Doheny Mansion. No, not at all. Okay. No, it was just my parents' house. Mm -hmm. Because obviously your name means a lot to Los Angeles. Doheny Drive is really important. The Doheny murals at USC that are there for art lovers to consume. Mm -hmm. That is great. And I can appreciate your desire for the independence to kind of set yourself apart from whatever you know, LA history might be associated with your family and establish your own career. Well, the funny thing is that when you grow up in, you know, any situation that you grow up in, whether it's one of grace or abuse, as a child, you simply accept where you are and what's happening to you and nothing seems out of the ordinary to you at all. You know, no matter how outlandish it may be for good or ill. My parents were extremely down to earth about everything. So I, you know, following that particular path and, you know, resisting some of the desires, resisting some of the opportunities to exploit my history wasn't really so much a question of me trying to escape that history. It was just out of respect for people that I knew didn't want, you know, had already been in the limelight more than they were comfortable with right. bad sense, but... Well, it sounds like your parents were very encouraging, too. I'm sure no, there's a lot of kids that show up and say, I'm going to be a rock and roller, and the parents are less than pleased. I don't think they had any idea what was going to happen, and I think if they'd had some sort of prescience, they probably would have claimed that gypsies entered my bedroom and stole my instrument, and they're, they, there was nothing they could do about it, but... The latter part was true. There really wasn't anything they could do about it. Mm -hmm. That was being bitten by a large bug. And you have to remember, too, that you know we all had radios. We all had clock radios. And so when you went to sleep at night, I mean, in the chart, the playlists in those days were absolutely stunning. Every song was completely different than the one before it. You went to sleep listening to it. You woke up listening to it. What were your stations of choice? Oh, God. Um, some of them have changed in, in ways that I can't, um, you know, they became fully news or whatever. I used to listen to KFWB and, and um, right, later great. on I, 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 I would listen to, um, to K West. And that, you know, I, my, one of my early managers was an ex-DJ, ironically, mm -hmm. when DJs weren't necessarily uh, algorithms <laughs> algorithms or, or well I suppose they created moods even in those days but they were more like uh, curators that, that, that were simply paid as employees and loved the music mm -hmm. and you know I was always a little bit reticent about the DJ situation because the DJ, DJs would you know, begin to take on some of the the luster of an actual musical artist and, it, and that always seemed kind of like, hey, you can't do that. But <laughs> of course, life being what it is, those are the very people that dug me up and dusted me off and, and played me. Because I think some of the true gifts that a DJ can give on the radio is you know, the exposure to mm -hmm. new music. And um, DJs that you become maybe larger than life are responsible for bringing to the forefront what might have been overlooked. So. Right. And all these, all these, the record company mentioned Be With and also the Numeric Group, they're all DJs.
So they do have just a love of music. Yeah. Their favorite playlists are going on in their head. They want to bring it to the world. Yeah, they get to a new, if they get to, if they're, if they're out and about in the United States, for example, they, you know, the first place, the first thing they do is go to a, try and find a record store mm-hmm. and do some, you know, crate sniffing. Right. <laughs> I've been exposed to that term, crate digging, also, just trying to unearth the amazing finds. Um, well, a conversation about your musical career wouldn't be complete without talking about your songwriting talents. And there have been a lot of, of singers who have covered your, your songs to, to great acclaim. So how is it that, that you think you came by that songwriting ability? I mean, to be a poet and... I don't, well, I don't really consider myself a poet, particularly. I mean, you know, to me, a poet is somebody whose words stand by themselves and don't require music to flesh them out. It's a little bit unfair of me to, to have that additional support, you know, from the, from the musical underpinnings of all that. But, you know, I had to hold my own at the dining room table. My parents are both really well-educated. So, it you know, it, it was uh, skirmishes and, you know, <laughs> and, and invasions and all kinds of, you got good with the language and at the dinner table in our house. So yeah, I'm with the vocabulary. <laughs> oh boy. So I loved that part. And the thing that was so frustrating to me is that if it were just a question of speaking, that's effortless for me. And I've always been really good at that. Writing lyrics, not so much. Sometimes the door opens, sometimes it doesn't. And you know, any writer will tell you that sometimes a song can be derailed by a phone call. Mm-hmm. And you can't find the thread again. So, you know, I mean, the, I suppose in some ways not having the kind of facility to... Because sometimes things look great on paper, but they're not, they don't sing well. So, you know, you're, you're really kind of, it, it's sort of, you're, you've gone from the, you know, from, from this enormous vista of opportunity to haiku. And you're stuck with it. And then not only that, you know, you have to be clever about it. And you also, your observation has to have some relevance to the human condition. Otherwise, you just sound like a loony, which is fine, I guess. (laughs) Fine, to some degree. Um, I think one of the most popular editions of your songs, What You Gonna Do For Me, Hmm. Fell into the hands of Chaka Khan, and maybe you could speak about how that came about, because I don't think that was a planned no. uh, association. No, actually, um, one night Glenn Fry and I went to the Troubadour, and the Average White Band were in town, and they were just—they—they they were their, The White Album had just come out, and they were one of the best bands I'd ever seen. Truly, I mean, to this day, I mean, they were—they were—they were drawing, you know people from the R&B industry who were seasoned veterans. They knew what they were doing and they they loved that kind of music. And so, you know, Glenn and I were sitting on the stairs of the Troubadour with our feet hanging over, looking at it just gobstruck by, you know, how, how versatile, how musical, how a bass player can play complex bass parts and sing equally complex vocal parts at the same time, madness. So as fate would have it, I, I was introduced to, um, during that period of time, their original drummer, I think it's Robbie McIntosh, died and from a drug overdose. He was at a party, somebody gave him something, didn't tell him what it was, and uh, it 
and he died. I killed him, and it, and it almost killed other people in the band as well. But f fortunately, they they didn't take as much or whatever. And but it was a, it was devastating. And in some ways, I don't think I don't think I don't think Hamish ever has ever really fully recovered from it. This is Hamish Stewart. Yeah. But I met him at one point when uh, we, we had a, a girlfriend in common. I mean, not at the same time, but you know, <laughs> she sort of introduced us. At that point, he, um, he was unable to speak because he had nodes on his vocal cords, so he would write things down. And uh, when, he, when he kind of came through, and we sort of became friends in the process, when he, sort of, when he came through that, one night we'd been at the Troubadour and, and uh, he came up to the house and the first song we wrote was a song called The Love of Your Own. And we did that in 45 minutes and, and we're terribly impressed. You know, I mean, first of all, it, it, it was, it, I had such respect for him and it was so lovely to, to undertake something like that and have it go so well. Mm -hmm. Some years later, we wrote What You Gonna Do For Me at the, you know, at the piano in my old house in the Hollywood Hills. And then when they were doing their, I forget which album it was, Soul Searching maybe? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, Soul Searching. Um, I'm in the vocal booth singing because they, the, the choruses and verses are very similar to each other. So that a vocalist would help them keep their place. And I was singing it really straight. I mean, I was just you know trying to make sure my intonation was good and all the rest of that. I wasn't taking any great chances. And I happened to look into the control room and there was Shaka Khan. And I thought, oh God. <laughs> and then the next thing I know, the door opens and she pokes her head in and she, you know, she was very complimentary and she said, you know, do you mind if I come in and sing with you? And of course. Who turns down that opportunity? Why, <clears throat> why not? You know? <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was extremely intimidating. She's a sweetheart. And based on her having oh. So she wanted to do uh, what she's gonna do for me. But Arif, when she presented the song to Arif, he didn't really hear it. But she remembered the vocal that they that there was a work vocal on the track. Mm -hmm. And so I got a call from her manager saying, do you happen to have a cassette of that? And I said, yes, I do. And I sent it to her and Arif heard that. So it was, you know, I, it defined by limitation. I, I, I did the most basic rendering of the melody that I could. And that seemed to make the most sense to him. So. And then it becomes a massive, massive hit. It's a big hit for her. Yeah. And, and apparently it's been covered like six or seven times by, by other artists of note. Yes, other also, people have tried that. That's incredible. Right. Serendipity. You know, I mean, you see somebody you respect, the next thing you know you're friends with them, and there's a, some lovely byproduct comes from that, which in turn yields another you know, opportunity, and that, that in those days, that's what the music business was like. Right. That's an incredible story. Um, I wanted to turn the conversation over to where we are now, we're recording this interview in Malibu, mm. and um, how long have you lived here? Mm. I originally moved here in 87, and I lived here for eight years. And then I moved back to, uh, my wife and I divorced, and then I moved back to, I uh, moved to Thousand Oaks to be close to my son in his school. Mm -hmm. And I spent the next four years there. And as soon as I, after I'd moved through that particular cycle, I, uh, I returned. So I moved here, back here again in 2010. Wow. 
And was it the same house or that you no 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 place? no actually I I um, no I, I I don't well that's not entirely true. Uh-huh. I lived at the there was a ranch on the LA Ventura County line. I lived right in front of Jack, right behind Jack Pritchett and mm-hmm. and the next house was Donald Scott and there was an incredible murder story about that and he was killed by the drug and by the DEA and. There, there are many tales surrounding it. Then the giant fire came and, you know, it burned up my storage shed with all my album masters and Christmas tree oh. ornaments and everything like that. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it was terrible. Yeah, so, yeah, so then I spent four years at Paradise Co. Mm-hmm. And um, wonderful. It was a great time there. And you're, you're an avid surfer. All my life. Right? So yeah. Paradise Cove is, um, as they say, freeway close. Yes, indeed. And, and also there were... Um, uh, there was a large Chumash population there, so I mean, if if you were to put on goggles and and go swimming, it's the mouth of a subterranean canyon, so the waves that would come in there would come in would be sort of unobstructed. But there was also a lot of uh, remnants of indigenous life, arrowheads and so pots scuba and, diving. You would find these well, I, not me personally, but I I know people that 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 brought back pots and you know things that they found sitting on the bottom out right. there, so. Incredible, and it was a beautiful location. I mean, if you really, honestly, it absolutely is. I mean, I know it doesn't sound very romantic, if, you know. I mean, it, it, it was a trailer park, but I was in there also with a bunch of uh, Hollywood's always been interested in Paradise Cove. Mm-hmm. Sam Peckinpah had a place yeah. there, and now it's yeah. infested. So. Yes, well, I do. I have to say, I moved to Malibu in 1999 right. and felt like, okay, if this doesn't work out, if these house payments become too onerous, then at least there's Paradise Cove. Always Paradise and Cove. And now, at this point, really, it's, I mean, a million dollars is kind of on the lower end of what's available in Paradise Cove at this point. And it has become an enclave of celebrities and... I agree. It's. I think all of Malibu actually is probably on the higher end of the real estate spectrum at this point. Well, they're trying desperately to, you know, they're just, the only thing that keeps people from kind of turning this place into the sort of mecca for visitors that they would like it to be, as if it isn't already, would be a change in how sewage is processed. Yes, that's true. I know that Paradise Cove has a long storied history of problems in this area because they're all of these places. All they're all septic. septic. They're all on septic. Yeah, and it kind of keeps the people from building. You know, keeps the whole building process from going com- completely out of hand. You know, it, it's you can't really put in a giant functioning fabulous Four Seasons hotel with a septic system. So. Well, that's true, but Malibu does has it share of giant, amazing 11,000 square foot single family homes that attempt to exist with the septic system and that's got to be yeah. challenging. It is. It is. Mm. And I just want to ask, what, what are some of your favorite places to go in Malibu? I used to drive, we would wake up early and go surfing, like 3 o'clock in the morning and I would go to my friend's house in Westwood and we'd all pile in a car and then, so I would keep going back and forth through, I mean I've been driving back and forth through Malibu ever since I could drive. And then, of course, the, the Mexican gentleman, the giant statue next to what used to be La Salsa, right. was originally the Hickory Burger stand. And so he wasn't wearing a sombrero then? No, he right? wasn't. He was wearing a little paper hat, <laughs> and he was holding a platter with burgers on it. 
And the hickory burgers were outstanding. So whenever we would come back from surfing, we'd always eat as many of those as we could possibly get down ourselves. So on our way up to Oxnard and places where the surf is a little bit more uh, threatening and fun, right? So um, when I first moved here, one of the things that struck me about this place is it still had a real, really kind of a small town feel to it. Yeah. And um, I really enjoyed that. There was a blockbuster. There used to be a movie theater. I loved that movie theater. Yeah. You, know, you could kind of hear rumblings from another theater. In yeah, the- it was a twin screen from what <laughs> I recall. Yeah, unfortunately, that um, was a victim of a fire. And then they rebuilt just in time for another, like, a natural fire, like the wildfire. Right. I think the original fire was kind of an interior building. Mm. And it just really could never quite survive after that. And now I believe it's a clothing store. Unfortunately, yes. And that feeling is also gone. You know, the celebrity took on a very predatory quality. And, uh, you know, thanks to people like TMZ and, you know, all the rest of that, they, it, it, they had people, spotters everywhere who would phone in, you know, the locations of people that, you know, might be of interest and yeah. be well paid for that. And I'm constantly seeing, um, yeah, like kind of paparazzi photos with familiar backgrounds in them because they're walking around in Cross Creek or they're at the Ralph's yes. parking lot. And true. Yeah, that's true. Well, yeah, that is unfortunate. But I guess the celebrity element does kind of sequester itself behind gates. So it's for, obvi- when, for obvious reasons. And you have to run out for almond milk. That is when you become prey to the, <laughs> the paparazzi. Oh, God. <laughs> True. Um, you've lived kind of all over Los Angeles, sounds like. And uh, Benedict Canyon was one of your addresses. Oh, yes. And um, was, this was in the storied area. It was kind of near, like, the Manson house. I and, picked up two of the Manson girls hitchhiking. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Do you think that you may have saved them from some... Not a chance. I saved myself. <laughs> because, yeah, they could have lured you over to the Well, they, they asked. They asked. They said, why don't you come back to the ranch, you know, and, and we'll do this and we'll do that. And in those days, you know, you picked up people hitchhiking because there, there was no threat. The, but there was the, something about the situation that kind yeah, of... Some, yeah, some little... I, I've, I've had a little voice in there that's always been helpful. <laughs> And I chose to listen to it at that particular point. Oh, that's great. So I'm watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Exactly. I thought, hey, my life. Yeah, that, yeah, it was um, the acid-dipped cigarette that Brad Pitt bought from the Manson girl. Right. For, what was it, that that amazing price of 50 cents or something like that? Right. And, uh... And that seat at the end. Oh, my God. uh, Yeah. No, it was great. Oh, it was great. I think that, you know, for, for a lot of people that know the story and the tragedy of that, this kind of retelling of that history was kind of a, like a, an exhale. Like, oh, yeah, that would have been so great. Yes. Had it only turned I'm out. the director. It can have any ending. I think it should. Exactly. Exactly. And I wanted to ask you, even though we are in a lockdown situation mm-hmm. at this point, do you have any upcoming dates or shows planned? Or no, actually, it's funny because I, I, I was always reticent to go out by myself. When I finished my first album for Asylum Records, they sent me out by myself with the first 10 songs I'd ever written. And it was just kind of... And that 
tour was astonishing. I mean, for a variety of reasons, which I can't really go into because we don't have the time, but I mean, truly amazing stuff. There are many stories at this point. But um, I, I was kind of loath to do all that. But then when the DJs revived me, I found myself, it was easier to go to England by myself. And um, I got really good at that. Rather than, you mean, having a whole band oh, yeah. to back you up? And yeah, I, I, it forced me into a completely different relationship to everything. I, did, I loved talking in between songs, so that was a lot of fun. And I just got good at it. And it was so easy. I mean, I just show up with a guitar and a little pedal board, and off I go. You know, but now it's the 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 music business is legless. You know? and it, I, I don't know when it'll ever come back, really. Well, it's definitely evolved. I mean, I think that um, very charitable. Of yes. Well, the exposure to your music is a click away from. Mm. You know, anyone wanting to experience it, True can enough. you put your name into a search engine, find you on Spotify, iTunes, you know, Google, YouTube, all of it. So in that respect, it's accessible, whereas years ago, like you had mentioned, it was walking into a record store and listening to the radio. That was the way. Hmm. So in that regard, I think the music business, as it were, is kind of, you know, large and accessible at this point. What concerns me is um, that artists are not being, you know, compensated fairly, that they're not being taken care of by uh, a at label all. or a support system. At all. Mm -hmm. Really. I mean, if you were lucky enough to be able to get your publishing back at some point, <laughs> the idea that you can sign, somebody can sign a publishing deal, which I signed a publishing deal with Warner Brothers when I was 20 one and they still have you know three albums worth and who the hell gets to do that who the hell gets to keep something for 40 years and just sit on it and make money and send you a little bit and just something raw and not okay about that yeah and so that goes all the way back right. to you know the genesis we've all heard the stories about artists that sign away their publishing rights they are extremely popular and so talented and they don't get to reap the rewards of that for that mm -hmm. reason so unfortunately it still goes on to this day i know but it's pretty interesting there's a new you know thanks to the djs and i have to i have to give them proper you know props for that whole business mm -hmm. i mean they really made everything made all that possible and now as it turns out the internet is so voracious that there is there will never be enough product for the internet and this includes things that you would never think that anybody would ever be able to find maybe songs that you weren't that proud of mm -hmm. or all of a sudden on somebody's playlist right <laughs> well it's very subjective everyone has their own favorites and clearly you're the favorite of a vast diverse audience It'd be, it'd be nice to be able to find some way to kind of connect all that. That's true. Wouldn't it? Maybe, um, I think a lot of people do that by hiring, um, like, social media managers. Oh. Stuff like that. Maybe, um, you know, like you're talking about this voraciousness. I mean, it's a, whole, it's a whole thing to get into, and maybe you don't, you know, want to do that. But I'm sure that there's people out there that would love to, you know, to connect, to let you know how much they love your music 
and I'm getting ready to abandon. I've already abandoned Twitter, and I'm right. I'm getting ready to abandon Facebook. I I find it other than you know the three or four people I've actually met on there who I've actually met. Yes, it's largely more about people you thought you knew than you wanted to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I can agree. I think Facebook is rather faceless. Indeed, and I think I think Mark Zuckerberg is the Antichrist, but that's another story. Okay. Well, he's selling some. He, it, it's brilliant. I mean, you sell something that somebody wants, and which they really actually is a complete illusion. Mm-hmm. Oh, very intangible. Yeah, I remember and... friends' birthdays. You know, I go over to their house. Um, if they're if they're if they're in trouble, I try to make myself available. We talk. We eat together, we drink, we go on trips, we, you know, we do all the things that friends do. We don't hit like. No. Creepy. It is. He's a creepy little man. It's, and to think that he's become one of the world's richest men by cultivating that, that facelessness. Yeah, it's really... Well, I think, that's, I think also we're in an era where at some point we're going to have to figure out the difference between wealth and wisdom. Just because you're wealthy and can do things because of that in a capitalistic society doesn't mean you have the wisdom to do it in a way that benefits people. That is really good. That's profound. It's true. You know, when you can really look around at the friends, the loved ones, the experiences that make you whole. How about a conversation that keeps someone from jumping? Exactly. Instead of some little Nimrod who bought Hawaii. (laughs) That's really ridiculous, isn't it? That really is. I think that <laughs> that's profound words because I do appreciate your wisdom. It's true. Oh, I, I, I agree. And that just kind of brings it around to the whole, you know, creativity yeah. is super important. It's what, to me, it's what really keeps the world spinning. It's in danger right now, yeah. along with free speech. Right. I mean, we have to hope that um, that speech that is not harmful to the people that we share the planet with can continue to get out there. And I, I agree with that up to a point, but I think that artists have to be absolutely, I mean, without restraint. Because mm-hmm. that's how it works. Right. And if somebody doesn't like what you've said or finds what you've said questionable, then they also have a wonderful opportunity to make a choice. That is true. It's okay for them to voice their opinion. Yeah, and not listen to you. Exactly. But, you know, I mean, people get ups- have been getting upset by great things forever. And that's, yeah, so what if you get upset? <laughs> you know, we're all going to die. I mean, that's kind of upsetting, isn't it? It is upsetting. I do think that some people, you know, they live out their life trying to reconcile with that ultimate end and find mm. some peace. I mean, I think uh, it's Buddhism based on that. And Oh, that's where they start. Right. That's your, that'd be your first meditation. Go sit over there and think about your non, not existing. Page one, paragraph one. Eight. But, you know, thankfully, <laughs> the artists still exist, you know, to kind of break it down and give the rest of us their vision or, or their sound, in your case, mm. you know, to make life livable and enjoyable. Yeah. Absolutely. And kind of understand the world. There are people that want to co-opt that mm-hmm. right now. And I think we have to be really careful. 
If they're successful, you won't be hearing another song worth playing for quite a while. Oh, that is a frightening thing to consider. It is. Oh, How lucky we were. Yeah. We got to listen to everything and make up our own minds. Yes. Right. Well, I think that's a really great place to end on here. I want to thank you so much for your time today, Ned. And My I would pleasure. encourage everyone listening to check out the music of Ned Dohini. You can do that on any music platform that we spoke of earlier, such as Spotify, iTunes, YouTube. And, um, you know, I think it's really worthy of your time to check out Ned's uh, voice and vision and just the gift that you've given the world. And Thank you. I do appreciate that. And hopefully we can, we can follow this interview up, maybe catch up sometime after everyone's kind of vaccinated and free to roam. That would be great. Yes. And for Los Angeles, this is Laura Craven on the JasonCharles.net Podcast Network. Charles.net. Jason Charles.net. Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep.